This episode of the Craft Sanity Podcast is brought to you by listeners like you who donated $1 a month through Craft Sanity's Patreon page. Learn more at CraftSanity.com. Well, if you couldn't express yourself, how would you de-stress yourself? And if you couldn't make and build and sing and knit and paint and dance and spin, would you go crazy? Well, if you're going crazy... Craft Sanity, Craft Sanity, Art and Craft Creativity, Interviews with people who make, they are here to help keep you sane. Craft Sanity, Craft Sanity, Craft Sanity. Hi, I'm Jennifer Ackerman Haywood and you're listening to the Craft Sanity Podcast, an interview show all about art, craft, and creativity. This is episode 166, and I am really excited to bring you a conversation with Jesse Janae, CEO of Lumi. You can check out Lumi at Lumi.com. The company entered the market producing Inco dye, which is a great dye product that helps people be able to print t-shirts and other things right with kits in their home. Now the company is branching out to help with other printing processes like screen printing, and they're also producing rubber stamps and decals. But what is really fascinating about this company is not just the products that they produce, but the story behind how it got started. I'm not going to say any more about it. I want you to hear this directly from Jesse. I do want to take a moment to thank my Patreon sponsors for keeping this show going. Thank you so much. I also want to thank ACS Home and Work for continuing to supply all of us flower sack tea towel lovers with great fabric to print on and embroider on. And um, yeah, so thank you folks for sponsoring this show. You can check out ACS Home and Work at acshomeandwork.com. Let them know that Jennifer sent you and they will hook you up. Their towels, I will mention, are great for printing on. So it kind of relates into this our topic on this episode. I do want to thank you all for your patience. I did have to have foot surgery, which I was not planning on. I'm fine. Everything's going great. And I'm not anticipating that I'll have to have any more work done on my foot. <laughs> but I was not planning on that. And it did kind of put me off my my podcast schedule. So um, I apologize for that. So I am back on track and just wanted to thank you for your patience. Without further ado, let's get into that conversation with Jesse. Jesse, it is a pleasure to have you on the show. I love your products. I think they're fantastic. And it's really exciting to see them now popping up at craft stores all over the place, which is got to be Thank pretty you. gratifying been, for you. It's been quite an adventure, yes. <laughs> I know you live in California now. Where in California are you based? We are based in Los Angeles. Okay. So Los Angeles, California, we make our products and run the whole business here. And I understand that you have some Michigan ties as well. I grew up in Michigan, in the suburbs of Detroit. In wh- which suburb? Because I'm from Fraser myself. Oh, okay. So I actually grew up in Royal Oak. Okay. Yeah. I've, I've been to Royal Oak many times. What grade were you in when you started this whole thing? So I started my first business, which is kind of what morphed into Lumi, the summer after my sophomore sophomore year in high school. So I was like 15 going on 16 at the time. Explain a little bit about how this got started, because it sounds like this was kind of a 
was it happenstance kind of the way this whole thing started? I mean, kind of a, a, a fluke in a way, or were you actively looking to try to do what you're doing? That's a, that's a really good question. I think that that's like, um, you know, when you've been working on something for a long time, you sort of, well, there's so many different phases of it, but sometimes, you, you know, it's like unraveling back to how, how did, how did I get here? <laughs> how did this thing get started? Um, even sometimes I wonder that. So um, basically when I was in high school, I, I, it's hard to explain exactly why I kind of made this decision. And and again, I was a teenage girl. So why do we do the things we do? <laughs> it's hard to know, right? But at the time, it seemed very logical um, with my 15-year-old brain that I, I kind of like, I describe it to people as I almost had a sort of like midlife crisis as a like teenager. Like I woke up <laughs> as a 15-year-old one day and I was like, doing honors classes and I was doing a bunch of like sports and all of like, you know, the good, like wholesome school stuff. But I kind of woke up and I was like, I don't know if any of these skills are going to help me kind of get to where I want to go as an adult. Like I kind of started waking up to the idea that like, wow, like I only have a couple more years of high school and then I'm going to be out there in the world. And I don't know if I kind of know that much about the real world. And so for some reason to me, my idea there was I should start a business. I was like, that's the best way for me to learn like how the world works. And this is literally like my thought process at the time. Now, what school um, were you going to? What high school were you? I was at, yeah, I was at Birmingham um, Seahome, Seahome okay. High School in okay. Birmingham, in Michigan. Okay. And so great did, school. did any of your friends have businesses? <laughs> I mean, did you know anybody your no. age? What about your parents? Did they, did they have a business? Well, my dad, so my mom has remarried. My, my biological dad um, is a local lawyer. And so he, he did kind of work for himself, you know, meaning he didn't work for a big farm or something. But, right. So he was uh, independent. He was independent. So I kind of got to see that. Like he made his own hours and things like that. My mom was a school teacher. But then my mom remarried, like around the time I was entering high school, my mom remarried um, a guy who is kind of like an inventor. Like he would come up with ideas, like he's really a mechanical engineer. He did projects with the military, like all these kind of crazy, more technological <laughs> projects. And so my eyes kind of opened to the idea that there was like way crazier life paths than like lawyer and teacher. Right, right. <laughs> and like, and, and so I think that, that that was like part of behind the scenes of like what opened my eyes a bit to like that there's more out there than just sort of the professions that are like in a drop down list, you know, right. um, that people know about. So were you doing any kind of printing or were you crafting? I mean, how did you decide to start pursuing doing kind of printing techniques? Yeah, this is a good question. Since the story I told, it was kind of like almost agnostic to that. It was like, I just decided <laughs> to start a business. Like, like what, what was it going to be? Um, so, the yeah, the answer there is um, deciding. I, I was always pretty creative. Like, I, you know, I think like a lot of kids and, and growing up, like I loved creative things, being crafty, doing projects like that. But ultimately, the decision to start, like, my first business was a t-shirt company, like, and I would draw the designs myself, um, which I guarantee you I'm not that good at drawing. It was just the t-shirts weren't either. Um, so I would draw the designs myself, and then I would screen print them in, in my basement. And the, the decision to do that business was really based off of 
like it's sounding fun to me and also it's sounding accessible. Like I didn't have a lot of money. And so the idea of doing drawings like that was, you know, free or cheap. And then screen printing in my basement, it did end up costing more than I thought it would to kind of get set up to do that. But it still was relatively inexpensive right. for starting a business. Now, did you have your own exposure unit and everything? Were you um, burning screens or were you using other techniques to create a screen? I was burning screens. Um, it was really hard. <laughs> I actually built my own exposure, exposure unit, um, and it was very difficult. And so this is so what you're capturing now is the chapter in which I learned that printing things and making things is actually very hard. <laughs> um, because, you know, as, when, as a 15-year-old, I was like, oh, I'm just going to print T-shirts. Like, And when you say it out loud, it doesn't sound hard. And I think... Um, I think that, so I, so obviously I started doing it and I found out it's actually very hard to do it well, like to do it in such a way where you can actually sell the product Mm -hmm. and not just like have it be a craft thing. Right. Um, that, you know, and I don't mean that in any demeaning way. I just mean it personally. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I took a screen printing (laughs) class last winter and I, I got all gung ho about it and I was like, cause I'm, I like to do, um, uh, I carve linoleum and do, I work on an etching press, but the screen printing though, I mean, I had like emotion, emulsion, like I was dumping it onto the floor of my bathroom trying to like do an at-home procedure and it's just like with a dark light now this this nonsense and i'm just like this is crazy so um... (laughs) it it gets crazy so fast and another thing is it gets very toxic very fast oh my mom i would work i would work in the basement and my mom would come down like every 30 minutes to check if i was still alive Like, (laughs) (laughs) like it was not it was not healthy it was it was very like you know and also as a teenager like my idea of printing shirts like I didn't need hundreds of each shirt. Like I was playing with ideas and I would just want one or two. And so that process was just very complicated. And that's like that, that whole period of like trying to do it well, building exposure and, and all this stuff um, and all the toxic chemicals, it, it's planted the seeds in my mind of like, there must be a lot of other people out there trying to do like low quality or sorry, low quantity prints um, and running into the same problems. And it, it kind of inspired me to research printing processes in a way more in-depth way. And that kind of, like, is what takes us into the loony kind of phase of things. So you were 15 doing the the printing in your basement at that point? Were you 15 or 16? I think I, so, yeah. So at the time where I'm actually starting to sell my own screen printed stuff, I'm 16 at that okay. point. I go away for the summer. I, I convince my parents to let me go for the summer between my sophomore and uh, junior year and visit a family friend that we have in California. And at this point, I've already been screen printing t-shirts and selling them to my friends in Michigan. And But I decide, because as you know, like I, I'm making very rational decisions as a 15-year-old, 16-year-old girl. So <laughs> I decide like, no, this is this is not just like some random little project. I was kind of frustrated as most, I think, as a lot of teenagers get, that like no one is really taking it seriously. Right. Like, And of course, looking back, I'm like, of course they weren't taking it seriously. Like, <laughs> I'm just like... <laughs> playing in the basement but but I, but in my brain I was like no this is serious like right. I decided to business yeah I want to make this real and so I convinced my parents to let me go stay for the summer with a family friend in California for the express purpose of me like building the business I'm really curious about why you thought that the key to the business was California what what attracted you to California what was it that's a really good question. Yeah, because I had started and everything in Michigan. I think that the the thing that 
it's a little bit arbitrary. I mean, again, like as a, as well, a I mean, teenager, California I like, sounds cool to any Michigan teenager, I think. So. <laughs> for sure. But right, so I, there's definitely that. It sounds cool, of course. But I think that for me, I was thinking, where is a place where I could learn more about the fashion industry and about, um, like, you know, because at the time, my product was not kits and stuff. It was T-shirts. And so I was, like, thinking, where could I go to learn about and maybe sell these to stores. Well, it actually, the, the, one of the key impetuses, which which is important, is like I would go around and try to sell my T-shirts to little boutique stores. And so I created a um, little database of all the boutique like fashion stores in the like in our in the area, like you know in the Metro Detroit kind of area. And what was interesting is like through my internet research, I was able to find that like, you know, there's a healthy amount. I mean, certainly people appreciate fashion and everything in Michigan. But then when you go and you look at what exists, like in the LA area or something, it's a quantum leap. Like oh, there's yes. so many more fashion stores. There's so it's like it's it's like, you know, dozens compared to like almost a thousand it's like ridiculously more right. and so I thought well if I could get out there like it's, it's just more potential places to sell more kind of knowledge and that's really all that guided me I do a lot of art markets and um, people are not they don't drop as much money as fast <laughs> especially not in West yeah. Michigan in Detroit they even spend a little bit faster but I think when you're out in California, I mean, fashion's so big, and there's so many people coming through town, and it's you also have some wealthy, famous people walking around there too. <laughs> I mean, so you yeah, have the, a lot. You have the potential to tap in. Yeah, so yeah, much. it's it's just it's just kind of plugging into something um, that is just where you know it's just about finding the right market and the right place for a certain idea. And I think that like I would go, so uh, you know, I before I left town um, for the summer, I went to um, local. Uh, stores in Metro Detroit and stuff and um, would sell the shirts when I and, and I kind of you know people were had sort of like lukewarm reactions I mean the shirts again were not that great so I'm not <laughs> blaming them but, but what's interesting is like when I went to California and I went sort of store to kind of sell and stuff um, the reactions were completely different like they were very they're very receptive to new ideas like when I would walk in and be like hey I'm 16 I started the t-shirt line like people were like oh like interesting tell me more and, and I think it's just um in a place where there's so many people and so much going on, there's just a little bit more receptivity to to new things. Um, and uh, it was just a general sensation. And I kind of felt like, interesting. Like, I feel like I could build something here faster. Mm-hmm. Um, and it may or may not even be true, but it was just a sensation that I got. Well, and it sounds like you really use that as your springboard. So do you? Ha- what happened when you had to go back at the end of the summer? Were you sad to leave? Uh, well, you can imagine... <laughs> I was like, the thing is that it wasn't, it wasn't Michigan. Like Michigan is a beautiful place. Like every time I go back, I'm like, wow, it's so beautiful here. Like, because uh, you know, you, 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 it's like, it was absolutely founder. It it is. And and it's so green. Like I always forget how literally beautiful this state is. Um, you know, when I had to go back, I, I was really just felt over high school. Like when I went back to high school, I was like, Oh man, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this, this is like going classroom days is not fun. So I ended up being able to convince my high school uh, principal that I went to my junior year the whole year, but then I ended up essentially getting out of my senior year. Like I was able to complete the course material at a community college 
And um, and so I didn't actually attend my senior year. So I think that's the biggest impact of that summer is that I came back and I was so like just ready to kind of start a new kind of life and like work on the business and stuff that coming back to high school was like a real reality check of like, how soon can I get this done? (laughs) (laughs) And were your parents um, surprised by that when you came back or were they like, okay, this does not surprise us at all that she wants to Um, skip her senior year? I think definitely it was a series of surprises for my parents. <laughs> like, I, I think it was a series of surprises. So in talking to other parents and stuff as well, I, I think that this would kind of be a universal sensation. It's like when when your child is that adamant about something and mm-hmm. it's something generally positive, like starting a business or something, it's hard to be in too much opposition to it. It's not right. like I was I was a pretty good kid. Like there was no other, it wasn't like I didn't want to go to my senior year because I was lazy or something. It was right. like, no, I was trying to do something. Right. So, I, so they, they had their misgivings and they were like, what about senior prom? And I was like, mom, no one goes to senior prom. Like, like, <laughs> like you know, they had their whole, like, they had, they, they tried to tell me like what I might be missing out on and stuff, which as a teenager, of course, I didn't care about. But besides that, they were like, they thought it was great that I had so much drive for something whether or not they thought it was a good idea was probably a different story (laughs) (laughs) well it sounds like they supported you though so you were able to graduate and so did you take community class college classes in michigan or was that did you move to california michigan okay no in michigan so i did stay like you know i did stay in michigan all the way through the normal time when i like would have graduated but but in that senior year i just had a lot more time um i was going to classes at community college and i had a lot more time to also like work on work on the business and different stuff and and it wasn't a big business but it was something and I was very excited about it and so um and of course I was doing the normal stuff like applying to college and everything else uh and I think that was probably the biggest concern about whether this decision would impact like my chances for college and stuff but it didn't so you know it's all all kind of turned out well (laughs) so at the point that you were uh still working on your business were you still printing screen printing in your basement or had you changed the formula and tried to move to it toward what you're doing now at what point did you kind of shift your focus that's a great question so around like around 17 years old I like somewhere in that time frame when I was really heavily researching different printing processes uh, I was trying everything like you know I did wood cutting and like I did like pigment dyeing and all sorts of bleach techniques and like I just I tried almost everything because I was just really fascinated with with what processes might be easier and getting cool results. Um, and so it's around that time, like kind of, I, I believe I was 17, where I discovered the idea that maybe it could be a photographic process. So, and it was still inspired by a class I was in at high school. I was in a photography 101 class and I was, you know, suffering through the laborious screen printing at home. And then in my class at school, I would walk into a dark room with a piece of photo paper and I'd walk out with a beautiful photograph. And I was like, why is this so elegantly simple? Like, why is this process so elegant and the process I'm doing at home so cumbersome? And so that was kind of the light bulb moment of like, why can't we do photographic printing on fabric? Like, why, you know? And so you set out to answer that question. Yeah, yeah, essentially. And of course, like, I think that a really good thing to note about that kind of storyline is that my first assumption was not like, I'm going to invent something or I'm going (laughs) to create something brand new. My first assumption was that someone 
had already done that. Right. You know? So you just had to and, find and out how they did it. Exactly. I just thought, and of course, some of course people have done plenty of photo printing on fabric, but the difference was that um, it was using traditional chemicals and it wasn't really wash fast and um, it wasn't really meant for fabric. So it had other like kind of drawbacks, but. But I think it is good to note that, like, when you have a crazy idea, um, a lot of times you assume someone else has already done it. You know, it's a big world. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, billions of people, literally. And and so I think it's really kind of a fascinating moment when you dig into it and you find out that, in fact, someone else isn't working on it or doing it. And then I think that gives you a lot of direction. You're like, wow, like, no one else cares about this. Like, it's me or nobody, (laughs) you know? And I think that's kind of what inspired me. So at what point did you discover something that you could build off of? It was right around that time. So I I had all these old crazy books um, about imaging and printing and textiles. And I was also reading all sorts of old patents on Google Patents, which is a really kind of incredible resource. And I came across a reference to Incodize. So Incodize is a brand from the 50s. It was developed by a chemist, um, a Stanford chemist, who uh, was trying to create products that for his kids, like literally he thought it was a funny thing for his kids to play with mm-hmm. because he was actually a chemist at a paint, a paint company that he had started. So his main thing was developing paints with like for like industrial purposes and stuff. And, um, and so he, he just created this little chemistry and, and I read, I, I found a caption in a book that, that mentioned it and it said like a photosensitive dye for fabric. And I was immediately like, that's exactly what I've been looking for. And so then my, again, my first assumption was like, well, it exists, like we're done. Um, and when I started looking for it, it was nowhere to be found. And it was essentially this kind of, um, extinct, extinct thing. Uh, and that just started my path to like, what is it really? And figuring out who still knew anything about it. And it became like a, that's where, that's where the, the, the like the sleuthing phase began. <laughs> now, did you try to find this man? I mean, was he still alive or what was the, did you? The original guy was no longer alive. Um, okay. And but he had sold, so I really turned into a major sleuth. So he had sold his entire paint company to another guy. Um, and, and so much time had elapsed that that second person was now fully retired. Um, and so I was able to track down that second person. And, and, and I came to find out over time that, like, yes, this thing called Anchor Eye had existed. Yes, it sort of did what I thought it did, but it didn't perform all that well sometimes. And so it really um, was just kind of, like you mentioned, kind of a starting point, and I had to really perfect that chemistry. Had it, but, had it been brought to market at all, or was it just something he was kind of trying to play around with? It had. It had. It, it, it mainly sold in, like, the 70s. Okay. And so there's actually some, like, I was able to actually find some product that still had some, like, mild functionality that had literally been made, like, 30 years ago, oh, like, wow. at the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and it, it was it was weird because they were up in the Bay Area, and so there's, like, it's just, you know, every time you dig into something, it's just crazy. There's actually some, like, weird stores that exist up in the Bay Area for the express purpose of, like, reselling old art supplies and stuff, and so I found some there. Um, so I really sleuthed it out, but I think that the thing that was interesting is when I was able to actually get in touch with this guy, again, like, being being young and, and trying to do a business um, is kind of a double-edged sword. On the one hand, 
is sometimes people pay more attention to you, like press or something, because I think it's interesting. Right. But then on the other hand, a lot of people are not prepared to take you seriously at all. So when I when I reached out to this guy and I mentioned to him, like, hey, I really have a lot of ideas around this. Like, I think we could, I think I could turn this if the chemistry works, like into a whole printing process, like basically outlined for him, like the whole business <laughs> that we run today. Um, he was like, he just thought I was a teenager and that it was not worth his time. Like he had no interest in talking to me. Oh boy. That's disappointing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what did you do at that point? I mean, cause you had worked hard <laughs> to find him. Was this a phone call or a right. face-to-face meeting? Well, so the um, it was a face-to-face. I was able to. It just such a, it doesn't even sound real when I tell the whole story. But the, essentially, um, I was able to find him via literally an address that was on a very old bottle um, of ink dye that I discovered. And I tracked down that address, and he was not at that address, but it was a business that um, had already been there for like 20 years. And when I showed them the bottle, they they ended up knowing the previous. They were like, "Oh, we know, we we know who was here previously," and they were able to get a phone number for me. So okay. we they got a phone number, and I called the phone number, and it was him. And this was already up in the Bay Area. Um, and I had already <laughs> to even do this because as you remember, I'm in high school and be up there. I had convinced my stepdad to take me on a business trip with him to <laughs> the Bay area just so I could do this. Oh, wow. So you, so you were <laughs> yeah. there for a limited amount of time. And so it was kind of like, now or never, man, I got, I need to talk to you. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So he gets this call from a teenage girl on a random day. And I'm like, I need to meet with you about Inkodai. And what's interesting is like from his perspective, Inkodai was not even like a real thing, like because he had run an industrial paint company. Right, it wasn't so his Inkodai primary was just, thing. Yep. Yeah, it was just this random little thing. And to be honest, what I learned later is that like it never even really sold for him. So it's like someone calling you about randomly, a, a teenage girl, about a product <laughs> that you don't even care about, and you're retired. <laughs> it's like it's like it's just layers of stuff that you don't want to deal with, and so he. I told him, like, no, I have to, like, I came all this way, like, I have to meet with you. And so he decided that we could meet at a McDonald's. He literally <laughs> specified a McDonald's, and I meet this old man at a McDonald's. I'm still with my stepdad, so it wasn't too scary. It wasn't totally creepy, <laughs> right. Um, but, but so that, that was the beginning. And, but, but I think from there starts a long phase of, of just the perseverance, because that first meeting, like I said, he immediately wrote me off. Um, and even after I explained things, he immediately wrote me off. So, so now, when, it, what um, do you mean, when you say he wrote you off, did he just, was, was he just kind of dismissive and didn't really want to give you any information or was he just kind of like, okay, well, I said what I have to share with you and now we will not be contacting each other again. I mean, it was basically both. I mean, he essentially said like, well, he, he was not mean, but he said that, it was a bad idea. He said, no one wants this product. Um, like we tried to sell this product and it never sold. And so he was like, this is a cute idea. And I appreciate you came out this way or whatever, but it's just not a good product. And like, and also I'm fully retired. So I really have like no interest in doing a business deal or anything with you. So like, and you're a teenager. So he was just kind of like, he wasn't mean, but it was just very dismissive. It was kind of like, yeah, it's cute, but it's a bad idea. And like, I'm not going to follow up with you. (laughs) 
So what did yeah, you do so then after that? Encouraging. So you go um, home. follow up obsessively with him. Um, <laughs> <laughs> of course. Um, so he, this is just to paint a picture. He's not even someone who uses, um, email really. Like literally <laughs> I had to send him like notes, like in the mail, oh, like, wow. um, in the way that I was actually able to keep up, um, I, and I think this is a good lesson in like perseverance, like at, at many junctures in this whole story, the normal, like very rational thing to do would be to give up. Like, <laughs> like, but, but I, but then you kind of, so I think that like achieving something a lot of times, a lot of times means you need to move past that point where everyone would have understood if at that point I was like, well, I tried right. and. It's right. done, you know? Yeah, because you, you went on the trip, you f- tracked him down. He didn't want anything to do right. with you. Yeah, a lot of people would give up at that point. And what is this yeah. man's first name? I'm trying to get a mental picture of what this guy looks Lee. like. So, Lee. Okay. Lee. He, <laughs> he's, so he's, he's actually an, an Asian fellow, and his, like, English wasn't even always great. So it was it was very challenging. Like, so now I'm corresponding with this guy via mail. Um, the, thing, the thing that was, like, the thing and grace, I think, was – was perseverance like and, and just being friendly with him um and letting him know so at that first meeting i was probably 17 and then and then i kept in touch with him like over the course of three years before we actually did any sort of business dealing together and i think it's that period of like perseverance with like i mean i wasn't talking to him every day or something but i mean i was i started going to college but i just never fully let it go and and I think that is like really a big difference between this story and a lot of other like product stories it's like it just would have been so easy to let it go at that point and what um, did you want it up. what did you want from him what I wanted from him was um he owned the rights to Ingridi and the formula and he and what's interesting is like even though he kept saying it had no value like he he didn't want to relinquish it. Like he didn't just want to give it away or anything. So, or kind of, I wanted to apprentice, apprentice him essentially to understand what, where the chemistry was at so that I could basically take wherever, wherever it was at and run with it. Right. Um, but so, and we ended up coming to an arrangement like four years later where that is what we did. So um, did you actually graduate from college in the meantime while that was happening? So my co-founder and I, Stefan, who is um, an awesome, brave soul for working with me on this project, um, he, we met at design school. We both ended up going through about 70% of that program. And then when we ran our second Kickstarter campaign in 2012, um, we, both, um, we both dropped out. So, <laughs> so well, we I, would say, I would say that you are very successful so despite that, so, um, you know, and the, yeah. th- the thing yeah. is for a lot of people, I mean, I teach at a community college here in Michigan and there are a lot of people who, um, you know, they get that degree and they can't find jobs. So, you know, I, I think that, um, you had a job, so. I think so, yeah. it's a balancing act. I'm very pro, like pro, I'm, I'm very pro education, which I think is weird for someone who like tried to get out of their last year of high school and then also dropped out of college. But I like we. I I do continuing education stuff all the time. Like, well, I'm you're doing a continual right independent study. I mean, for Pete's sakes. I mean, you're not. You haven't closed off the learning. You know, right. there's no way your and business I, wouldn't grow if you did. 
So right, I think that, but but I do like to make it clear that I'm also not like anti traditional education either. Right. I think that for a design profession, you know, a college degree is a is kind of an interesting thing because you certainly don't. It's not like being a doctor where you are either accredited and stuff, or you are not. Like in the design profession, it's it's a little bit more about what you bring to the table and your portfolio and stuff. Then no one really asks about your degree. So I think that the Dropping out was also fueled by that. Like, it was an expensive school, and I kind of, um, you know, my certainly my family means were not, like, fully paying for that. So I kind of had this moment of, like, do I want to, at this point, do I want to kind of take my education into my own hands and build a business where I might make money or kind of keep putting myself in debt? And um, and I made, obviously, the other decision. Mm-hmm. Well, I think a lot of people are making similar choices because um yeah it's so expensive and which school were you going to where did you go yeah it's a school in pasadena called art center college of design and it's a it's a, it's a school that specializes in industrial design okay. and that's what i was studying yeah okay and so it sounds like you met so you met Stefan. uh i think on the web i read somewhere that you you met in a class we met there. yeah yeah were you at a class together okay yeah and so were you talking to everybody about your printing ideas or um, did you end up just sharing with him what you were working on or how did, how did that partnership form? Yeah, mainly, mainly him. Yeah. I was not, I was not going around, um, kind of talking about it all the time. It really was like a, a personal project. Like for that whole phase of my early college, like years, it was, it was a personal project. Like I never gave up on it, but it wasn't really making money. It was more of just like something I was doing. And so Seth and I, um, we were in the same incoming class, uh, both studying industrial design, and it's a very small school. So we got to know each other very well. And we we work, like, for some reason, always from day one, we had, like, a kind of yin-yang work relationship. Like, he is his skill set matches mine in an opposite way, like, very well. So we actually became homework buddies. Like, he would like, almost, like, tag team our homework together, like, and work together on it. Um, and so we kind of learned that we worked really well together. And then we're spending so much time working on the homework. At one point, we were bored, and I, like, mentioned this whole crazy print project I was working on. <laughs> um, and we ended up working on that, apparently, a little bit more than our homework. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's awesome. And so you knew that you could be um, partners then in, in a business setting as well, and it sounds like. So how long have you guys worked together? So that was, like, about five years ago. I mean, four to five years ago. Um, and we've been working together daily ever since. And, and that is kind of um, something I've come to appreciate more and more as time goes on. And as I hear more business stories and a lot of stories about like co-founders fighting and, you know, having trouble and breaking up businesses and stuff. Um, we, I don't know, it's just always been a kind of a natural like work marriage of sorts <laughs> and, and we just work really well together and it's been a beautiful thing that's really cool and so why do you think it works because I think a lot of people make the mistake of jumping into business with somebody and they don't really fully like kind of have a handle on whether or not they can even work together like on a basic level yeah. and if yeah. you grow to not like your business partner that's very problematic so why do you think it works so well with the two of you um it's a very it's a very good question. It's I do think that that those that early phase of 
seeing each other's work ethics through homework prior to joining in business together was very formative because we knew, like, him and I both, like, we were both very efficient homework people. Like, we liked to get really good grades and really, like, learn from it, but also be efficient. Like, we didn't dwell on projects. Like, we would get them done. And so I think we learned about each other's work styles, and I'm not sure exactly how to do that when you don't have that opportunity of working in school together. But I think the other thing that we have is, like, a very open, like, we're both really honest people. <laughs> like, we don't mince words. Um, we don't kind of beat around the bush with, with each other. And that's always been pivotal, like, from day one. Like, if there's bad news or if something is going wrong or if one of us is uncomfortable with something, it just – it's just instantly known to both of us. Like, there's no secrecy. <laughs> no, I think that's um, very I important. That's I think that's really yeah. important. Yeah, because sometimes people try to say what the other person thinks or what they think the other person wants to hear just to kind of keep everything even keel. But that's usually a terrible – well, it's always a terrible idea because the yeah, truth of, it's a spiral. Yeah. It's a spiral. Yeah. yeah. So it, and it's not, So it sounds like, too, um, so you knew – going into this, um, was it something that did you ever anticipate that you would have a partner in this? Um, um, I, you know, I, I definitely never thought of it that way in the early phases, but, um, but then I think it's been amazing. I think it's been amazing. I think that it's very hard to be like a solo founder. It, it, it was, everything depends on your goals. And that's why I also like to tell people in relation to business and life, like, there's no hard and fast rule. Like sometimes amazing companies are built with solo founders or maybe it's a team of five. Like I don't think there's hard and fast rules, but for me having someone to, to like lean on who has complementary skill sets is just like, I can't really imagine doing this another way. And also everything has phases. So in the earliest phase, I definitely felt more like this was my project and something I came up with and Stefan was working on it. But now, I mean, we've worked together for so long. Yes. I kind of, have that initial impulse of the idea but this company and the way that our products look and the way that we present ourselves is every bit as much him as it is me at this point and so it's like you know it's an evolution that's awesome well it sounds like you've made you made a very good choice to uh partner up with the the gentleman from your class (laughs) yeah he's great yeah he's super talented all of our package design our website design like the fact that we um you know we get comments a lot in the kind of um in the craft and creative space about how different our brand kind of looks Mm -hmm. uh from others out there and it's really um it's really his brainchild like you know we like to we like to think of ourselves as making creative tools and like useful things for people and not um and not in and not not painting ourselves into a corner of like looking like the other brands we see in the store no they do stand out it does have a kind of a um a really unique uh design uh and aesthetic to it that stands out from the rest of the the products in the craft aisle so that's really that's cool. You're still only 27, and you've been doing this business for what about like you've been pushing for 10 years, really? How about yeah, a decade? Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's what I like to tell people. It's fun to be able to say that I've been working on it for over a decade um, because because also I've used that line like I've I've been in a few like kind of um, dicey meetings with kind of. Um, older gentlemen and stuff well, where they want to be a little bit. Well, you've been in some intense meetings. I watched you on TV with my family um, not too long ago. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> when you did right. your, you so were in the Shark that. Tank. Yeah. <laughs> right. 
Exactly. So there's things like that, but but even even more so, like sometimes the kind of cliche things do happen to young women in business of like people acting like, you know, maybe you don't know what you're talking about. Or I remember um, particularly, and of course I will not name names, but I sent over, someone was asking for a distributorship of the products, and I sent over, like, you know, we have just normal distribution terms and we have a simple little contract and it's all like very standard stuff and I, I sent it over to them to say like, hey, you know, does this work for you? And the response I got back from the guy was like, honey, like who wrote this for you? Um, this is like very, the terms, he like, you know, I'd like to speak honey. with. He said honey. Yes, yes. Oh, he said, honey, sakes. who wrote this for you? I'd like to speak with whoever wrote this for you. And I was like, well, you're going to have to talk to me because <laughs> there's only me. <laughs> You'd be like, hey, sweetie, um, you're going to have to talk to me. <laughs> oh, my gosh. But, but in situations like that, I like to throw out, um, you know, and I'm always, like, kind about it. I think, you know, sometimes time, you know, times change, and not everyone's kind of up on it, I guess. Right. Um, but So I'm never mean about it, but I do like to say things like um, – but I have been working on this for over a decade. And so while I seem young, you know, maybe it's just that I got ahead. Like, you know. Right. Um, you just kind of have and, to throw that down that people know that yeah. you didn't just roll into town last week and start dreaming up this this project. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. And are you finding that you're still able to get the deals done in situations? And I know, um, you know, I, I, uh, for people who saw you on Shark Tank, um, I guess mm-hmm. we could talk about that. That was when did you actually record that? segment okay that was recorded last september so september 2014 okay that was recorded but they didn't and air it aired... until recently Go ahead. they didn't air it until recently though correct correct so february 13th it aired and what's okay. actually interesting um is it's airing again uh tonight actually really? okay. um is a rerun so um so yeah so it, they, they they there's always a lead time like that they film everything you know way far in advance well, I know in my household, it's funny because my kids love that show, and um, mm-hmm. I find it sometimes kind of annoying because um, yeah. some of the people, I just don't have a lot of patience for the rude way that the, the sharks are, are, they're kind of rude, and they're trying to manipulate yeah. people, and I'm just like, as a small business, as a, you know, I have a small business myself, and I kind of get annoyed, and I'm also really hesitant to give up control of my business to like a really rich person, so I would, right. I would not right. probably do great on that show either, but um, but was really, uh, I know my whole family my, my daughters especially. I mean, they were like, what? Like, <laughs> they're asking questions. And my youngest was, my daughter, was she was like, they just don't seem to get it. I don't think they get it. And I'm like, they don't get it. <laughs> That's the problem. But so. It's interesting. It's just fun to, it was, it's a really fun experience. How and, did you and, end um, up on the show? How did that, how did, did you apply to be on yeah. the show? Okay. And so. You, okay. You apply, basically, um, you apply, although, um, it's we were like kind of scouted, so I think that's something that people don't know is that like um, from our Kickstarter days and having like a couple of successful Kickstarters, um, I think that they cruise a lot of the producers cruise. I, I think I mean I'm postulating here on Kickstarter oh, and yeah. they like look for, for ideas. Yeah. Yeah, that could be good. And then they reach out because they want the show to be kind of a balance of like real businesses and some people who just have ideas because it's not fun if all of the businesses are like ridiculous, you know, so they they cruise around, I think, for some a little bit more legitimate businesses and, and so, you know, so we were scouted a little bit, but then you still go through the normal application process after that. Okay. So did you have to, um, was there a lot of hoops to jump through to, to get to the actual taping? 
It, um, there, there's, there's a considerable amount. I think that a lot of it has to do with legality. Like, they want to make sure you don't, like, it's like a bunch of legal hoops. Like, they want to make sure you don't have a criminal record and, um, like, just different stuff because ABC is, you know, of the court always concerned about their reputation or, um, you have to get a lot of, like, legal sign-offs for, for instance, like our packaging. Um, our packaging has photography on it, so we have to make sure that every single photo shown on our packaging, everything is fully signed off by all the photographers and stuff, because it, when something goes on ABC and millions of people see it, it's like a whole bunch of mini lawsuits can crop right. up. So I think that was the hardest part, it's, but it's kind of, it was just, it's generally basic stuff, but it just takes a lot of work to get it all done. So when you finally got to the taping, um, what was your state of mind going into it? I was excited. I had I had really researched the numbers on our business, and I, so I felt pretty confident that, you know, that I wouldn't make just, like, a fool out of myself and not, you know, know the you know, answers to their questions. Right. Um, but generally excited. I think that the thing that excited me most about going on um, – is a little bit that the the idea of becoming an entrepreneur is like becoming more and more in vogue and more and more kind of popular with young people. And I think that that's exciting. And in, I think places like Shark Tank, even though they're campy and kind of a little bit overblown, are still like a main source of knowledge for a lot of kind of normal people across the country for what is venture capital and what is all this stuff. And so to me, there was like a thrill in just being a part of it, kind of like zeitgeist, like just doing it because it's like, it's at the height of its kind of power right now. It's an exciting thing. Um, and I, so there was something kind of just thrilling about that. And then when you got out there and it, I mean, cause basically you're making a pitch on national TV and even though it's not live, right. it's a recorded thing. I mean, it's not like you're dealing with, the guy calling you honey, you know, one-on-one, it's like you're dealing with people in power suits who have more money than all of us put together. And, um, you know, these people get what they want. They do what they want. And, you know, and so you're, you walk out and at the time you were, what, were you 26 at the time? Yeah, 26 at the time. Yep. So you walk out, you Um, have your display set up and then what happens? Well, so it is actually, it is, it is very surreal to actually be in front of, like, Mark Cuban and, and all of those people. Like, because it's one thing to see them on TV. And, I mean, they look the same in real life, but the difference is that it's real life. Like, <laughs> right. like they're really there. Like, right. you're, you know, 12 feet away from them. And, and, um, and so it is kind of surreal. And so it takes a little bit to kind of gather up your mental energy and, and, and duke it out. Um, but I was impressed with how authentic the show is behind the scenes um, in the sense that a lot of reality TV these days is like, um, it's like prompted and scripted and they tell right. you what to say. And, and, but it, it, for Shark Tank, literally you walk out, you walk down the hallway, you stand there. Um, they do like a count of 30 um, just to like make sure all the lighting and stuff is right. And then you give your pitch and then the sharks ask you questions. There's no cuts. There's no edits. There's no scripting. There's no interjections from the crew. It's just you talking to them. Like, so even though they definitely ham it up because they know it's on TV, right. it's still like just you talking to them. There's no scripting and stuff. And did you, before you walked down the hall, did you and Stefan maybe have a discussion about what it would mean to have somebody 
like a big power broker as part of your team? Because that changes the dynamic because you and yeah. you and Stefan are like equals. Um, I don't think that either one of you, unless I don't know, I don't know either one of you personally, but I don't think either one of you are millionaires, um, you know, coming right, into the right. business. So you guys built equal. this, you <laughs> built this business. It, it, it wasn't right. like you came to it with tons of capital. So right. when you have, you're looking at these people who have tons of money to spend um, and invest in a business, were, did you have any reservations at all about what would happen if you actually, you know, got a deal? I mean, was that a concern? Yeah, the, the way that we looked at it was kind of clinical. So we, and this is why you can kind of see how the episode went, and it, it kind of echoes this. Stefan and I had, had had very detailed conversations about it, and I think that the, one of the best parts of um, that helped my my kind of excitement level going in is that we weren't in a desperate situation. Like, I think it's really a, it's really a bad negotiating position and a bad place to be. If you go out there and you truly need the money in the sense that if you don't get it that day, you are going to have to shut your doors and stuff. We were not at all in that situation. We were trying to get money to grow in in a new and different way. So, so not needing it, like the business would not close down if we didn't get it was very helpful. But then Stefan and I had conversations about, because of that, because we weren't like desperate, what deal would really help us? And we kind of had firm like um, lines drawn in the sand of like, this is the types of deals that would help us with these terms. And then if it crosses into this territory, we're going to say no, because we don't need these deals. And it would probably just make our life more of a headache. So by having kind of more clinically just already decided what deals would help us and what deals wouldn't and where the lines were, and that's what I had walking out there. And so I, when, and that, and you'll see that like at a certain point, the, um, Lori and, um, yeah, Lori and Kevin start offering more and more debt based deals, um, like that they'll take equity and give us a loan. And Stefan and I had already discussed that we didn't need that and it wouldn't help our business because we, um, already have a bank line of credit and stuff. Like we right. are credit worthy. It's, it's not a quarter million dollars, but it's, it's, it's healthy though. And so there's no reason for us to take debt and give up equity. So just by knowing what we would do and what we wouldn't do was a big comfort walking onto the show. Cause I didn't have to decide while I was standing there. Now, did you have your products in the craft stores at the point that you were, because it seems like you I see your stuff all over the place now. But were you, had you already, at that point you recorded that segment, had you, were you already that far along with product? We were, yeah, we were already in the craft stores. Um, Like we were in most of them. We were obviously always kind of increasing the distribution and deciding what makes sense and stuff. But we were, we had already done a healthy amount of stuff at retail. Um, And, but, but being on the show helped like increase people's general awareness. Yeah. um, As well. So it, it kind of all worked out well. That actually is one of the biggest reasons why um, the airing and stuff actually helped us so much because, it, you know, when people, it, you know, there's like that rule of threes or something. When people have heard about something three times and all of a sudden it kind of sticks with them. And I think that, you know, with our Kickstarters and different things and now when you add on Shark Tank, there's just, we can feel it in terms of, um, people we run into and emails we get that there's just generally more awareness of Lumi and Inkodai now, which is um, definitely helping us. 
Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, the, even though, you know, you did not walk away with a deal, but it sounded like, I mean, you could have, you could have had a deal if you really, really wanted to, but the deal was not a good one they offered. <laughs> right. The deal was not something, that's where you just have to know yourself and, and right. know what will truly help you and have the strength to walk away if it's not good. So that the deals they started offering just weren't good. And so um, for us, I mean, it's not like they were unfair or terrible deals. It's just that we had already pre-decided that we didn't want to take a loan-based deal. Right. Um, and so... At that point, well, and it wasn't I just was a loan. I mean, you're giving up part of the ownership of your company, right. to get the loan, which crazy. is different than any bank yeah. because any bank you go right. to does not own your company unless you default right. on all your loans. Then they're going to start taking stuff from you. But, but yeah, right. I mean, but so that was that's just a huge difference. Through, and you're getting that great exposure from being on the show. So it sounds right. like it worked out. And I do want to. I know we've we've kind of wound around um, in, in this. It's a very it's a very interesting story of how your business grew. But one of the things that I wanted to get back to um, is Lee and how you decided when you made the decision to leave your educate you know leave school and pursue this business full blast. What kind of process were you using to print? Um, were you still experimenting with combining the photo? Uh, and the, just what were you, what, where were you at when you finally got Mr. Lee and how did you get, finally get Lee to join you in this venture? Right. Right. So, um, when, when we did, by the time we did the second Kickstarter, we, uh, owned the formula at that point. Um, and because we started producing it and we released our first kit. So by the time we left school, we did control the formula. Okay. Um, essentially, uh, you know, a, a, a little bit before that, so while we were still in school, I, and so again, I had already been conversing with um, Lee for many years at this point. Um, I finally, I think he finally kind of got convinced by the fact that I had kept up communication for so many years that I was actually serious. Um, and additionally, I think he kind of, the, the plea that I made, which I recommend to most business people, it's like a, it's a pretty good one, is, um, that just talking to him about the fact that right now, since he was retired, the he was essentially mining zero value from something that he had in his possession, and I didn't even fully know what he had, but I knew that he understood the formula, and um, and he had a couple, you know, some different assets like bottles and stuff that might be useful. But so I, I was explaining to him how he had essentially something in his possession that people could have fun with and can benefit from that was essentially doing him zero good. And in my hands, it might do, you know, it might do, it's got to be more than zero. Like I didn't right. make him some bold claims about what I could do, but it's got to be, but I, I convinced him, you know, that I was so perseverant that it, I've got to be able to do more than zero. <laughs> right. And so, so, and so I think that he finally got persuaded by that. And then it came down to like, what kind of arrangement should we have? And, um, and, and what it really turned out to be is us essentially um, buying the knowledge that he did have. And, and, you know, I don't want to go into too much specifics, but it wasn't really large sums of money. It just, it just was kind of making it worth his time to really spend time with me and us, um, educating us. And then we did also buy some, like, simple... Um, things that he had on hand like he still owned some pieces of equipment like mixers and stuff that that we did need and so it, it but in the end it wasn't some huge financial transaction it really came down more to convincing him on like a personal level that right. that we weren't going to give up well, that's cool. <laughs> and that maybe he could get some value from it yeah now is he still uh, are you still in contact with him now 
very, very occasionally, but he, he's, um, you know, there's no kind of residual, like, the, we, we own, like I mentioned, like, we kind of, it was really more of a knowledge transfer because we learned what he knew about the formula at that juncture. And then had to take it. And then we took it from had there. to change it. Yeah, because even, even though the original chemist had made it with the idea of children in mind, it was still far too toxic oh, for that. Oh, yeah, that and we've done, we've actually made some great strides. The product still does have ammonia in it, but it's, um, but it has no carcinogens and like, you know, it's much, you know, much healthier, um, like much less impact on the environment and different things. It's fully water-based product. Um, and we have even, we have even more in the pipeline of how we can even make it even safer than that. But so it was a knowledge transfer and then us kind of building, building from there. And, and so was he surprised when you were actually, because, I mean, you've been able to take this to market. You've improved upon the original product that wasn't successful back in the 70s. Has um, he surprised by it? I mean, has he expressed any kind of, have you heard any feedback from him? He, he, he's very, he's a minimal, minimal person, but he is, a, he's generally excited for us. Like, I think that, I think it's kind of a fun thing for him to watch in the sense that, um, you know, he really, he really always thought I was a crazy teenager, and, right, and this crazy funny, kid like, that of... came to visit him, and now yeah, and, and I've really taken it. I've really <laughs> done everything. Yeah, so I think he he I think it's exciting for him um, to actually see people using it and stuff as well. If you can explain the product line a little bit, so people have an understanding. Right. So we the original product that we started with that we still have is the Inco dye range. And we have our photo printing kit, shadow printing kit, and sunfold printing kit, which all use Inco dye and use the premise that you can print using the sun, sunlight. So uh, it makes it backyard. super easy. Yeah, so it's very fun um, and it works very, it's like the process of photography, but for fabric. So that is a really, really fun process, and those kids help you get started. Recently, we have also, we have been fascinated with helping people do creative projects and print things at home for many, many years, and now we're branching out into also helping people do that um, with more than just ink or dye. And on the newlimit.com, you can upload graphics, um, could be a logo or a drawing of yours, and we can now, um, with just a couple clicks, ship you uh, soak screen kits, rubber stamps, uh, and decals, and we're going to be adding more categories as well uh, to make it easier to execute all sorts of creative projects. So that, that's something else that we're dabbling in now. Well, and that's really cool because I was able to actually try out, um, I sent in my uh, Craft Sanity logo, and um, and now I've done some screen printing. I took a class over the winter, and I'd done some experiments at home using, like, embroidery hoops with, like, uh, curtains, cool. fabric pulled tightly. You know, so I've done a lot of the mm -hmm. at-home types of things. And I tried the um, – I got the screen the other day, and I tried it last night, and I was really – really impressed because I actually have like the big uh, metal screens and some wooden screens at home that I mm -hmm. you know burned with uh, exposure units and all that and with the toxic chemicals and all that stuff. <laughs> right. And what I loved about this is it didn't make a mess in my house at all. And um, basically it comes in a tube, you unroll it. And I did two experiments. I did one where I taped it down. I always print on fabric. So I taped the screen to um, a piece of just like a tea towel fabric and um, okay. printed first with that. And that was, that was pretty cool. You know, I was like, all right, this really works. This re really works well. And I wasn't, I wasn't sure what to expect because it's not, you know, where your screen is pulled really tight. 
Um, I right. was like, oh, I wonder how this is going to work. And I was like, wow, this works really well. And then I did the same experiment, only I took the screen and I didn't clean it or anything. I just took the screen and I immediately then put it down onto one of my um, regular screens for for printmaking um, oh, okay. for, or for screen printing. And I wanted to see what would happen if I taped one of your uh, screens to a traditional screen mm-hmm. printing screen and then one that I can raise and lower with clamps, you know, I have a clamp to a right. piece of board. So um, that makes it, that's one thing that you can't quickly raise your screen and swap out and do another shirt right. or design. So I thought, okay, let's see how this works. And I was not expecting it to work because I'm thinking that's two layers of screen. That's going to be, you know, pretty, um, you know, it's going to be hard to get the ink through. But actually what I found is that it, I printed a t-shirt and it was really fast and really clear. And even though I pulled, I, you're not supposed to bring the ink across like multiple times. <laughs> like you're right, it's supposed to right. be like one, one really smooth, you know, application. Right. Well, I was like, I, I was like, you know, I, I have a couple spots I want to get, you know, and I did the tea towel, um, I did the tea towel print without using a screen, my screen, I just used yours. And I actually then, you know, did that same thing again with, on the, on the screen and I was like wow this is really I mean obviously if you're if you're if you're a screen printer and you're doing like thousands of shirts or something obviously right. that's you, not going to be the best way for no. them to make a screen no but screen yeah, our screen kits are really like again to my kind of my goal of crafter. making printing easier right it's just like everything doesn't my I, I think that there's just a philosophy of like everything doesn't have to be hard or uh, like super, super complicated. And that's why we sell those screens there. They're, they, you know, don't have frames on them and you can, like you did, attach them to frames and we're going to do some more tutorials on that. But just the idea that it comes in a tube, that the small kit is $15 and the, the large kit is 25 and that includes the ink and the squeegee, it just hopefully will get more people playing with these processes and getting their feet wet. That's that's my goal. Right. Well, I mean, if, if you think about uh, uh, just a container of emulsion is about 20 bucks or more, depending on, yeah. you know, and, and yeah. of course you can make a lot of screens out of that, but it's toxic. You need to have a... a photo light and you need to have a exposure right. unit and all that stuff. And, you know, if people are really looking to go full blast into that business. Great. But I'm going to be doing t-shirts for my, um, my, uh, the students at my student, the student newspaper that I advise. And, um, cool. I was doing block printing techniques, but I think it'd be fun for them to have a day where we could, um, maybe do some screen printing as well. So I'm thinking this would be a great way to get that screen and I could just attach it to one of my screens. The only thing I noticed is when, um, I taped it with um, packaging tape down, and I was a little mm-hmm. bit reckless when I just, like, ripped it off, and I pulled – I kind of frayed the edge of it a little bit, but, I mean, it's still going to work okay. fine. It's still going to work fine. Got it's it. just don't be super reckless when you're removing the tape. <laughs> you know, I was like, oh, let me right. clean this off, and it came off, and I didn't even think about that tearing, but um, it's totally fine. The screen's still going to work. How long should I expect that that – like, how many prints do you tell people they can actually pull using that screen? We recommend, like, thinking of it in the in the 25 to 50 print range. Okay. Um, and it's really, like, the screen, 
technically, like the materials on the screen are super high quality and they're, they're rated for hundreds and hundreds of prints. But it's more of just the fact that the screen um, doesn't have doesn't come with a frame on it. And so it's your normal kind of wear and tear of washing it and, and ripping tape off and all the different things that people do with them. We just try to set the expectation in a reasonable way. Um, but, but, it's, but if you take really good care of your screen, it could go for several hundred prints probably, but it's just kind of normal wear and tear is going to happen with everybody right, though. Right. And are you guys looking to get into producing screens that have um, the wood frame? The frame we um, are we are looking at that so that we can kind of support people as they grow further in their projects. Um, so that's, that's, that's definitely something we're exploring. Um, but right right now we're planning a whole kind of pipeline of, of product categories that we're going to be releasing on the, on, on Lumi.com. And so it's really cool about the fact you uploaded your Craft Sanity logo is that now you have that logo like uploaded on Lumi. And as we release more categories, it's just a couple of clicks to order that as uh, a wood screen or as new things that we release. So that's kind of the vision of the new um, kind of direction as well is like just helping people achieve all sorts of creative projects based on, you know, what we've learned over the years. That's really cool. So are you still looking to um, develop your, um, the Inco dies to, a, to another level too, or is this something where you're, yeah, yeah. Okay. So you're no, just... it, it's, it's a still it's a constant evolution for Ingrid as well. But I think that what I um but I also kind of know though is like, you know, Ingrid can do so many things, but then it also um it's not perfect for every application. Like if right. you're trying to print a logo, screen printing is a far better process for that. And so I think that what I'm really excited about with offering more than one process is to truly be able to offer really unbiased advice to our customers about what's best for their project. Like, right. So I they, want, don't, they my, don't feel like you're pushing Inco dye when it's screen printing. Exactly. Would be better. <laughs> right. When, right. When we only sold Inco dye, it's like, you know, it's, it's, of course, we still gave honest advice to people when it wasn't right for their project. Sure. But of course, it's not fun for me to be like, hey, I think you, what you really need is nothing that it's we saw. Like, that I, 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 I would love, right? <laughs> yeah, I would love to be able to truly be, like, I'd love for people to know Lumi as, like, that's where I go when I'm trying to achieve a specific thing, like, Lumi, Lumi knows and Lumi can help. And so that requires us to have multiple processes. Right. Well, one of the things I wanted to say also for the, the squeegee that comes with it, that it's a lot smaller than a, a bulky squeegee that you right. buy traditionally to do screen printing. But what I found is that when I first started screen printing, it was really awkward to hold this giant squeegee. And, yeah. and it was hard to get the hang of, but the other, the one, the little one that comes with your um, screens, I was like, oh, okay. You know, I was like, okay, this is little, but it did the job really, really well. And I had my other scree- squeegee off to the side. So I was like, okay, if I want to swap out and like, you know, use my other equipment. And I never did. Even when I went to the screen, I'm like, no, I'm going to keep using this because it's working. So um, I really like that too. Cause I think sometimes people think they have to go, you know, with this, you know, really traditional professional grade stuff that's high end or more expensive or what traditionally has been used. And I think you guys have been found a way to make this really easy and accessible for a beginner. And um, I, I really like that. So I applaud you for that. That's it's, it's, it's good. It's really good. I appreciate that. That That's, that's the goal. If we, well, our goal is to help people do their projects and not, um, yeah, not try to sell them things they don't need. Like, honestly, that's like, if there's something in business, I feel like it's a really good philosophy to have is that like, 
you it's our it's my job to make really cool stuff and sell to people who really want it and need it like not not anything else than that like so it, you know i need to keep keep creating things that um are really useful to people and don't over don't overdo their application right right and you're getting things out fast i do have a question about the ink it's i noticed it's water soluble um is it mm-hmm. a, a color fast ink on fabric or is it intended yes. for paper? No, it's okay. great. So that so this is something else that like is really an important philosophy of me for Lumi is like, especially with all the new product categories, we are doing extensive testing. Um, so we have tested um, the ink that we offer against every single brand um, of like, you know, black screen printing ink that's sold in all the craft stores. And for all of our user testing, I certainly always encourage open experimentation, but for all of our user testing, this ink is outperforming everything available in craft stores. The Something that I believe also is that um, I don't like how different grades of product are sold in like craft stores as opposed to sold in the professional stores like you should just be getting the best ink that there is. Right. Um, like that's right. kind of my belief. Like why is there certain ink available at Michael's that is like of a lesser quality because it's craft grade or something? What does craft grade mean? Like, you know, I was crafting once, like, and I remember wanting my projects to be right. first Nobody quality. Wants their, no one wants their stuff to smear. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So of course, so, so the, we, we just test it based on like, What's the best, which is what's the best ink? Um, and whether it's a crafting or not a crafting, like it's completely irrelevant to us. So are you going to be selling your ink in larger pots of ink? Because I think that's one of the things I could see people wanting to, because now, I mean, I have, I really like the ink. It, it really, um, I loved how I didn't have to work it for a long time or, I mean, it yeah. was like, I just basically took it out of the little little pot of ink, put it down and it was good to go. It wasn't too gloppy because like sometimes screen printing ink can be really thick, like way too thick yeah. and you have to thin yeah. it and then you can't really print right away. And if you weren't really planning on working, having to work your ink, it can slow down your whole process. So I liked how the consistency of the ink was really good and I could see people wanting to purchase a whole pot More. of the ink. Yeah. We are working on, on, on that. It hasn't been hasn't been a high priority because a lot of our customers are still just getting going with the right. technique. So it hasn't been like they haven't needed that yet. But for but also something that I'll just say so everyone knows, um, we have had a couple customers who have needed more for a project and we've taken care of that immediately for them um, via email and just working with them personally. So if ever a need arises of something that we have, you don't see on the website, please feel free to email us at hello at com, and we'll always help you out because okay. um, we know how projects go. But we're also working on more of like a marketplace for those resale products. And is this uh, an ink that is it made in the United States or where are, are you guys producing the ink this yourself? This ink is actually so we're working with a, um, a Japanese manufacturer, and the ink is made in the U.S., um, but they, the, the kind of chemistry of it and everything has, has come from them. So, um, but the ink is made here, and almost all of our products, like some select components that we work with are coming from overseas, but nearly everything, everything is made and prepared and filled from our Southern California facility, um, and whenever possible, um, product everything is made here and that's also just practicality um we we also we firmly believe in like supporting u.s products and and we ourselves make u.s products right um but but as well as like 
I want to get things to people quickly. I want to be able to rely on them. And so using our local infrastructure, which for us a lot of times in Southern California, is also just the smartest thing to do, you know, for the customer and, and for the business. Right. So are you actually making ink in your facility or do you have it made someplace We're else? not. This ink is made in Southern California, um, but not in our facility. Okay. Well, I think it's fantastic, though. It's it's good ink. And um, I haven't washed the shirt yet. I was letting it dry because I put um, – I think I was doing an experiment. And I actually recorded a video that I'll put on my YouTube channel soon. But I told people, I'm like, this is not what you're supposed to do. You should not be pulling the squeegee back three or four <laughs> times. But I missed a spot. So I'm going to continue to do this. We'll see what happens. Um, and, and you can tell the ink's heavy, but it, it was not – it didn't destroy it. Um, and I kind of wanted to show people, like, worst case scenario, like, if you do not follow the rules and you keep doing this, what <laughs> yeah. will happen? And that saves them from ruining their own T-shirt. So I'm like, if I ruin mine, I'm, I'm willingly being a getting pig. And it didn't get ruined. I mean, it was fine. But, um, yeah, and that's what sold me on this whole concept because I, I like the fact that, um, you know, I could take that screen and tape it right down to a screen that I could raise or lower with, you know, and just have it um, so I could swap things out underneath quickly. So even for people that I, I think even people who are doing higher volume printing or they're working as um, artists or professionals in the field, I could see people for convenience sake, there might be a, if someone does not have an exposure unit, there could be a, a pretty practical reason to 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 do this. So I think you'll see some crossover, not just, you know, home crafters and people trying to make uh, uh, shirts for their kids' sports team or brownie troop. Right. Um, but there's the market is so huge. So it's going to be interesting to see those those sharks really miss, missed out, I think. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think they well, missed out I, on... <laughs> I, I think that if there's like, um, if there's one takeaway I have from the experience that I think is really... Um, really positive in terms of what I learned from that conversation with them. I think that we weren't thinking big enough about our own business. And I think that that is actually a really common thing that happens to entrepreneurs. You get very close to something Mm -hmm. and sometimes you're so close to it, it's hard to see uh, what else you should be doing. And so I think that when you, I mean, when you watch the episode, I'm exclusively explaining Ink and I and not our other ambitions of like helping people print other things. And already in less than six months from the episode, we've launched all of these different capabilities. And, and we, and I think that we, um, it, it encouraged me to think more broadly, like people, it made me realize like, you know, yes, we have Ingodai, um, and it's this amazing product, and it's it'll always be near and dear to our hearts. But we also have been interacting with hundreds of thousands of people over the course of several years about all of their creative ambitions and entrepreneurial projects. And why why don't we use our expertise to help them with all of that as well? Like, why would we hold ourselves back from from doing that? Um, and 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 that's what kind of the, the new Lumi.com represents. And, and honestly, I think that that sensation of like, are we thinking big enough, um, you know, partially came from that conversation I had with them. And so I give them credit for that. I don't know if you have any parting advice, like for somebody, there might be a, a teenager out there listening, and they have this idea, and maybe no one is taking them seriously. And maybe people that were, yeah. te- maybe people that were teenagers 10 and 20 years ago, too, <laughs> they could benefit. But what's the best? Um, what, what is one thing you wish you would have known then? when you're getting started? Um, I feel like the most useful thing to maybe hear <laughs> is that from the inside of every project, 
it seems like a mess. <laughs> like, you know, and, and I think that that is something that is really good to hear from someone who maybe seems like they've achieved, a, you know, some degree of success is that it's always, when you look at someone else, you're like, wow, they have it all figured out. Like, they knew what they wanted. Like, I, I like to remind people that in in the first couple in the first couple years of even the Inkodai idea, I didn't even know that we were going to sell Inkodai. I originally thought that it would just be a fun way for me to print T-shirts. Like I was thinking very small about it. Okay, so, so you're thinking you I, would use that process and not share it yes, with other people. I see. I, I didn't even know at the beginning because I wasn't even thinking that way about it. So it's everything from the inside is kind of a crazy mess, like every project, every business, like you, there's always problems, hassles, backups, delays, like it's, that is so normal. And the only thing that kind of gets you past that is just persevering. And and if it seems like you don't have all the answers, like no one does. Like I have had a, a million different junctures at various times where I was like, where is this all going? Have I made some like huge major life mistake? Like, <laughs> you know, like it, that is so normal. And I think that people, enough people don't talk about that. Entrepreneurs tend to like to tell their story in a way where it was like predestined right. and then all of a sudden they popped out and they were successful. Like, no one's story, like not a single person's story is actually like that from behind right. the scenes. And it's always just a mess of events. And, and, and the only thing that strings them together is the fact that you haven't given up. <laughs> well, that's great. And this is coming from a woman who is now uh, a C- you're CEO of a company yeah. that is um, – how big? How big would you, is your company now? Well, we we have, I mean, we've passed that threshold of making over a million dollars a year, which I think is a really great threshold for a bootstrap business that That's started awesome. as a student project, essentially. Yes. Um, and uh, Ingodi is available in over 1,500 stores, and the newlyme.com has only been live for two months, and we've already sold product to over 30 countries. So wow, good for you. Things are growing. That's awesome. That's really awesome. And and it's and it, this. I mean, it took time. It took time for you to work up to this. And how many employees do you have now? We're a team of ten. That's awesome. So to do over a million dollars in sales with a team of ten, not too shabby, sister. High five. That is awesome. That is really Thank awesome. Thank you. Yeah. No, I think, well, and I think it goes to show, too, if you believe in your idea and you get yourself a team of people to work with who believe in the vision as well, you know, really the sky is the limit. And that is really fantastic and very inspiring. So I hope people at home are thinking about, hmm, what ideas they've written in their notebook that they can maybe, you know, dust off and get working on. So. It all sounds, everything, nothing sounds big at the beginning. That That is a really key thing. It's like when you look at someone else's story, you always think, I don't have a big idea like that. I started selling T-shirts to my high school classmates. Like nothing sounds big at the beginning. It's all what you make it over time. And, and so people get discouraged sometimes before they start, and that's the biggest mistake. A special thanks to Jesse for being a guest on the podcast and being so generous with her time. Uh, we had a good long conversation, and I hope you all got inspired. It's great to hear from someone who's really successful in their business about those times when they weren't sure what to do next. They weren't sure they were on the right track and how they just kind of keep forging ahead. And Jesse was very kind to share that because, as she mentioned, a lot of times people are hesitant to talk about the things that are hard and the things that don't go well. Because I think a lot of times there's pressure to put a good face on everything that you're doing and people don't often share the behind the scenes struggle. 
but I think I respect people more when they do. So I hope that you folks were inspired and had something to take away from this conversation. Lumi did send me a credit so I could try out some products. I ended up buying beyond my credit <laughs> because I liked the products and I was like, oh, stampers and 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 uh, screen printing. I really liked the results that I got. So I ordered, um, I had the Craft Sandy logo made into a screen and that was really cool to try that, as I mentioned. And I have a stamp as well, make tags for some of the products that I'm making. And yeah, and it was really, it's pretty cool. So you can head over there and test out the site yourself and see see what you think. Again, I want to thank ACS Home and Work for making this podcast possible. Thank you so much for your continued support. You can check out acshomeandwork.com and uh, search around for home goods, including the flower sack tea towels that are my favorite (laughs) things to print on. I love the undyed, just the natural colored towels. I also want to thank my Patreon sponsors again for sticking with me and being patient while I was recovering from my foot surgery. Uh, It did throw me off my schedule. So thanks again for your patience, folks. Hopefully you felt this interview was worth the wait. I'm in the process of recording a new batch of interviews. So if you have a story to share yourself or you want to recommend somebody else to be on the podcast, by all means, get in touch. Email jennifer at craftsanity.com. And uh, you also can follow kind of what's going on around here. My late night art and craft sessions over on Instagram. My uh, handle over there is at craftsanity. And I appear daily for the most part on Instagram. Send out a search party if you don't see a post from me at least once a day. (laughs) If you're interested, I am doing tons of printmaking and I'm finally bringing some of my prints to market. I print primarily on fabric and I plan to do some prints for, you know, artistic purposes as well. Um, But I'm a practical woman and I've been printing a lot of patches that go on canvas totes and t-shirts. I've started to post those in my Etsy shop. So if you would like a t-shirt that says dropped off by UFO, need tacos, I have that for you. (laughs) I have some bossy pants shirts and I'm also making uh, one of my favorites is be kind. It says in large print or get out of here. It's (laughs) it's a small print. So they're a little sassy, but they're fun. And I'm having fun. I'm kind of in this point of like reinvention as I professionally kind of sort out. I'm trying to sort out what I do next professionally and and decide what on my bucket list I pursue next. I'm having a lot of fun. It's it's a little unsettling because I'm not sure exactly what my next big thing is, but uh, this podcast is a constant and I'm really looking forward to interviewing my next guest. Anyway, I will be back soon. I hope you guys have a lovely holiday and I hope that your summer is shaping up to be everything you hoped it would be and more. So make lots of stuff this summer. Always pack a project when you're traveling and don't forget the sunblock. I'll be back soon with another episode. In the meantime, Craft Sanity, my friends, it works for me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Craft Sanity podcast. To support the show, click the Patreon link at craftsanity.com to donate $1 a month or buy a handmade loom or magazine at craftsanity.etsy.com. Same time next week.